0: It's gorgeous out. Let's pop some dogs. This is the UpDuck Podcast, a blend of upland and waterfowl hunting. Tune in as your hosts,
1: Tyler Beaton, Jeff Ludicky, Matt Jeske chat about training dogs and share their bird hunting stories, tactics, and strategies.
0: Welcome back everyone to part two of our conversation with conservation wardens, Matt Grappi and Megan Jensen. If you listen to part one, I think you're going to enjoy part two just as much. And with that said, let's go ahead and pick up right where we left off last week.
1: So what advice we, we can start with water, right? Boats. What advice would you give somebody that maybe had just bought a boat for the first time? You know, they're looking to head out and maybe hunt some ducks or geese. Um, from a safety standpoint, what, what recommendations do you have
2: to that type of individual? I mean, the, the biggest thing is, you know, I, I think, um, you know, with, with uh, hunting waterfowl out on, out on the river, I mean, there's, there's a few things most important is the life jackets um, and um, proper, proper care and storage uh, of life jackets. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing uh, you hope you never need them, but we always tell people to keep them, keep them accessible, keep them in good condition so that, you know, should you need them, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna work and, and that you'll be able to get, get at them if, if you need them. So, um, you know, with, um, you know, there's a lot, obviously a lot of different options out there. I mean, being out, you know, in uh, October, November, um, you know, water gets cold, obviously you're on the river, you have current to deal with. I mean, personally, like having, having something with like, you know, positive flotation um, is uh, I, I, I would recommend that, um, you know, when, when you're out there, you're not uh, having to rely on, um, on something in, inflatable. Um, I mean, that's, that's a huge thing with, with that cold, you know, the cold water. And um, I, I, I don't know, I guess, uh, you know, having, I mean, having a throwable available as well. And they're only required for the boats that are over 16 feet by by law. But if your boat's under 16 feet, not a bad idea to to have a throwable in there.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, boats, boats, a lot of responsibility. Obviously, we have our, all the legal requirements, um, you know, making sure you're getting your boat registered, renewing it when you need to, um, taking the boater safety course if you're required to um, anyone born you know, January 1st, 1989 or after um, needs that course. Um, But making sure that you have, um, you know, your navigational lights are working too. I mean, a lot of duck hunters are going out in the morning when it's still dark or coming in after dark. Um, Those navigational lights um, communicate with other boaters out there where you are, what direction you're going. So making sure that um, you have all that stuff working properly before you head out. Um, It's always a great idea before you go out for the season to make sure that your boat's squared away, ready to go, lights are working, you have those life jackets. Um, You know, in Wisconsin, you're not, you know, um, you're not required by law to necessarily wear your life jackets, but as Matt was saying, especially during the duck season, it's cold out there and that water's getting cold. And especially when folks are wearing waders, if you go in, that could become a really dangerous situation. So... Uh, That life jacket's not going to save you if it's, you know, tucked under all your decoys. Um, When I go out, I always wear my life jacket. Um, It's, you know, I I don't want to get in the water with waders on and my heavy, my heavy duck hunting jacket and stuff because I'm probably going (laughs) to sink. So, you know, that life jacket, again, not required to, but best practice is to actually wear it. Um, One thing, too, we really want to make sure that duck hunters especially are aware of is not overloading our boats. You know, um, every boat should have a capacity plate on it. And I think sometimes folks overlook that. They kind of forget that every single decoy has a weight on it. You know, um, your waders add extra weight. And so making sure that with all your gear and your dog and your guns and your ammos and your buddies, you're not exceeding the capacity for your boat.
2: Yeah, and then I know that one of the popular things to do, um, you know, rig up the boat line, right, and you put, people put a floor in their, in their boat. Um, I mean, that adding, adding the plywood floor, I mean, that's going to add some weight as well. Um, And, you know, one of the big things that we, probably one of the biggest things that we have to remind people is that um, if they, if, if the boat is of closed construction, so if it would allow entrapment of gas fumes, um, then it's required to have a fire extinguisher on board. And so, you know, where, if you have like an open flat bottom boat there and it, and it's not like it's open construction, but then you put a plywood floor on it, well now it would allow the entrapment of gas fumes. And so now that, that would require a fire extinguisher. Um, and so that's an important piece of, of safety equipment that you know is worth worth keeping on board as well. Obviously, you know anything mechanical uh, is prone to failure, whether it be the um, you know the the boat motor or or anything in in the boat. Obviously, you know you add the floor, you have your uh, any electronics, um, you know lights rigged up, you know whatever whatever it may be. You know having a fire extinguisher is never bad. Uh, idea even if it's even if it's not required you yep.
1: i would assume a flip up uh hunting blind would be uh you would need a fire extinguisher for that too as well right would that be considered an enclosed
2: if it, it I, I would say if it's just mounted on the sides of the of the boat um i would probably say no but i guess i i would qualify that with you know, depending on on how how it's rigged up. Most of them that are just rigged up on, on the sides, probably not. It's usually that it's usually when that floor is added, uh, to the bottom of the boat is, is what, um, is, is where that requirement would come into play. And then as I touched on the electronics, I think it's also worth noting that, uh, one of the things I've seen enough uh, too many times in my career, I guess. Um, but probably uh, more than a handful is, um, You know, when people have their metal gas cans um, in the boat and then, you know, they have might have multiple batteries. um, In the boat as well, and um, you know, with the the batteries, um, they are required to be um, uh, covered, the terminals are required to be covered, and then they also have to be. um, um, Secured against uh, shifting and so. When I say I've seen this too many times, I've seen it too many times where there's an un- uncovered unsecured battery next to a metal gas can. And so I point out to people, I said, do you know what will happen if that battery tips over and those two terminals touch your metal gas can? And then most of, thankfully, almost every in every case people have looked at me and they said, Oh yeah, that's not good. <laughs> and then they, <laughs> then they move their battery and, and uh uh, but that's, that's one thing that, that is, uh, that is worth um, pointing out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: now Matt Jeske, you've a lot of time in the Mississippi. You got a permanent blind. Do you got any specific type questions or this category at all? No, but luckily, while they were talking, I was checking off all the things mentally that I do have in my boat. That you have? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing I'm curious about is the the light bars. Obviously, that's that's all the rage now. People have these huge, big light bars on the fronts of their boats. And with the LEDs, you know, those things can get crazy bright. Um, with the navigation lights, is it is it actually legal for somebody to drive around at night with that big light bar on? Or if they're being approached by a boat, should they turn it off? How should somebody um, handle something
2: like that? Um, that's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. And I guess the, um, so the, the short answer is like the statute, um, requires, um, or, or I guess prohibits any, any light that, uh, would either interfere with the required navigation lights, or could be mistaken for those required navigation lights. But we also like understand that, you know, commonplace you're running around the sloughs, and it's dark out and and you need I mean, I mean, it's either you have a light on like that or you're holding a handheld spotlight so you don't uh, run aground um, like we, we get that I would just say, um, you know, if people are using them, and we use them on our patrol boats. Um, I would just say be mindful of other boaters and so if you're using it to navigate. Um, you know, and you're using it for safety. Uh, that's okay. Just be mindful of, you know, if you're passing by other boaters that you could, I mean, those lights are like blinding. They're, they're Some of yeah. them are blinding. They're so bright. Just be mindful of the other boaters and that if you don't, um you know, if you don't actively need it for navigation, then, I mean, then it can be turned off. And a lot of times like before, I mean, obviously we we run the same slews pretty frequently, but I mean, you get comfortable, with where you're at, and a lot of times, like you know, just with the ambient light that's out there, um, you know, you you can see the vegetation, and you can you can see where um, where you have to go, and especially like those main thoroughfares out on the river, um, where where you're, if there's other boaters around, you don't need to to keep that light on continuously.
3: Yeah, and I guess from a from a legality standpoint, like Matt said, though, at the end of the day, um, you know, they can't interfere with or be mistaken for navigational lights so if if someone does have a big LED light on and we can't we as law enforcement can't see their bow lights or their stern lights um you know we may stop them because we at that point we're if we can't see that they have a bow light or not um, we need to ensure that they have that piece of equipment on their boat um so kind of like matt said you know it, it's to use for helping see where you're going but it should also be used cautiously, because at the end of the day, those those navigational lights um, that are really set the, the standard by the U.S. Coast Guard are there to help communicate with other boaters um, that you're there and what direction you're going, because those colors actually have meanings to them. Um, so, with mm-hmm. from my experience, and um, I'm sure Matt, too, those LED lights, like you said, they're really bright, and they do drown out those navigational lights, and um, if people are used to kind of reading, you know, the, the all around 360 white light, and then the, the red and the green bow lights and what those mean, if they can't see them, it it may confuse them as to which way that boat's going. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I guess one, one more thing on, on the, you know, we've seen people with the, like the rope lighting, uh, going around their boats or the wake lights in the back, uh, all, all different, uh, variations and, and, um, essentially that um it it all it's all covered by the same statute essentially so if it interferes with the required navigation lights or it could be mistaken for for the required lights then then they're not uh they're not allowed
1: gotcha that makes complete sense all right um we kind of covered boats so now we'll kind of bring it to the the upland field side of things um what What advice do you have for dog handlers specifically, like mistakes and safety concerns that you see people make with their dogs, whether it's going on to private land or not leashing your dog or, or those types of things?
3: Yeah, so when it when it comes to the dog stuff, um, I guess you know we don't we don't have too many regulations um, revolving around dogs. I mean, we have some activities that are, you can't hunt dogs with. Uh, or you know use the aid of dogs such as like deer hunting or spring turkey hunting you can't use dogs but um you know in state state parks um dogs have to be on a leash but generally speaking on our state wildlife areas and that I'm speaking about state owned properties I can't really attest to um properties owned by counties or other entities but um you know it's being mindful that it's a shared space and that there might even be other people out there that aren't hunters or aren't used to dogs and stuff so be mindful of of them and if you have an overly friendly dog might not be a bad idea to um you know put them on a leash and until you get out in the field um we want to make sure folks are safe too so thinking about where you know when you're getting your gear ready and stuff and you uh, get your gun out of the case, you know, where are you putting that, making sure that it's not going to be someplace where the dog might step on it and step on the trigger and have an accidental discharge. But, um, you know, we we love seeing dogs, um, you know, we've got dogs ourselves and we love hunting with them, but it's just being mindful that there are other users out there, um, ensuring that, um, you know, we're cognizant of them and our dogs aren't running all over and interfering with their enjoyment of whether they're hunting or non-consumptive users and then just following any any property specific um rules out there as far as like trespass or anything um i guess we actually don't handle trespass complaints generally speaking so that would be on the sheriff's department but you know as dog owners i think it's you know our responsibility to ensure that we have our our dogs under control and if that's something that we maybe need to spend some extra training on or just be a little bit more cognizant of where we're going. I think that you know, we as responsible uh, hunters and dog owners, that's something we can work on.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. As, as crazy as it seems to all of us dog owners that some people actually don't prefer dogs. I know that seems crazy to all of us, but just trying to remember that is important when we're around those types of people.
0: Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with those types of people, but (laughs) we need to respect them. We do. We do. Takes all kinds of kinds. Right. Right. That's right. I will, (laughs) I will say like the, the, the big thing, like I hear a lot or the the throughput or like the summer summarization with dogs is to control your dog. Right. And that's like, that's, that's a big thing for me. Like personally, it's not like, I don't personally, like I have two dogs. I don't want other people's dogs that I don't know coming up to my dog and Mm -hmm. them, the dog not leaves, The dog doesn't have an e collar. The person's not paying attention, because that's like it's not that I don't trust my dogs. I don't trust your dog because I don't know your dog. Um, and if you know, um, and if we put ourselves in like these people's shoes that don't don't like dogs, they definitely they probably do not trust any dog at all either. So um, it's a good point. It's, it's good to keep in mind. It's good uh jeff anything else on safety that was really that was really good summation um, that's all i had on safety Jeff. Okay. Okay.
3: actually if i could uh one thing i forgot about boats i think it's really really important especially for uh waterfall hunters um is to make sure that you're unloading your guns when you're firing up that motor i uh i thought about it. i apologize i thought about that earlier but that is that is something that we do take very very seriously um so making sure that anytime that motor is running, um, that the gun's unloaded um so that you can stay safe. And then it's also to ensure that people aren't, you know, going out and um being unethical hunters or, you know, aren't um having fair chase either. But um, that's pro- probably one of the biggest safety things we do look at with um hunters when they're in in boats, motorboats.
1: Now, speaking of motors, I think Wisconsin just passed a they added a new rule. Was it a few years ago now that you have to have a kill switch on at all times on your on your body? Is that correct
2: um if the, if the boat is equipped with with one, then yes, it has to be uh, worn. That's actually a federal requirement. Wisconsin has not uh, passed we don't have a, we don't have a state law that that mirrors that federal law ah, um, interesting.
1: But if the motor does have a kill switch, you are required to wear it.
3: Gotcha. Correct. Yep. And that, I mean, and for obvious reasons too, um, especially with duck hunters, with mud motors and stuff, we're going back in shallow areas or stumps, there's debris and stuff and anything can happen. And I know wardens on the river had had to, you know, go investigate uh, boat incidences where people have, you know, their motors have hit stuff and ejected people out of the boat. And, um, you know, wearing that, that kill switch lanyard or having some kind of, um, shut off switch like that. I mean, it ultimately could save your life. So, um, it, it's nothing to wear them. So I wear mine all the time when I'm out of my boat, um, as well, Just why not?
1: Right. Yeah. I have a long tail mud motor and I know if, if your hand falls off that tiller handle and you fall out of the boat, I mean, that boat's just going to keep on going, you know, those things idle at a pretty, pretty fast pace. Um, so it's probably not going to stop until it hits something. Yep. all right good well you want to kind of get into the last topic tyler
0: yeah 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 unless matt matt jeski anything else on safety on your end anything you want to ask about
1: no jeff's jeff's question about the light bar actually was what i was gonna
0: i was gonna ask about as well good that was a really good one Mm -hmm. um all right uh okay so last kind of kind of the way we're thinking of wrapping things up is thinking about okay how do we how do we as hunters get involved right how do we how do we get involved and you had mentioned you know getting in touch getting to know your local wardens how else can we get involved um and like the, i look at it this way the hunting community it's it's in and of itself there's a lot of self-regulation in there right hunters reporting other hunters um and then you guys come in on the support side and help with that too how do we how do we be better as hunters with helping you out and helping the community out and being involved
2: i I think um, if people are looking for like ways to to get involved, um, I think you know one of the biggest one of the biggest ways that people get involved is like we're actually having a big like push to recruit more hunter safety instructors. Uh, the um, the the demographic of our hunter safety instructors is uh, I, I mean I, the group's getting getting older and and so we're trying to make a big uh, push to recruit some younger. Um, uh instructors or more instructors I should say, um, just to help teach that next generation of uh, of hunters how to how to uh, be out there be safe and and um, enjoy themselves um you know I, there's there's numerous other ways that people can get involved. A lot of the uh you know s- state properties around around the area have friends groups where they work on uh, habitat related projects or even if it's not like a, a friends group, um there's uh there's numerous other, other like or conservation related organizations um that that do habitat type work and and that are involved in their um communities through uh safety or or even just like learn to hunt events i mean a lot of the the wisconsin waterfowl association um is is a big one with uh with promoting learn to hunt events um so there's there's a lot of different ways that uh, that people can get involved and and certainly, like the uh, whoever the local warden is, they might know for a particular area, like where uh, what some of those needs are in in the community, or or where people might you know you know if they're really looking to get involved, they might really be able to help out in a, in a certain area.
3: Yeah, I um I was going to mention the R three efforts. So the recruitment, retention, reactivation. Um, so we have um at the DNR we have staff who are dedicated to R three programs, um, and then. Um, They work with our three coordinators for like Pheasants Forever, Wisconsin Waterfall Association, um, Turkey Federation. So I think those are great ways for people to get involved um, and can get involved in multiple ways. So uh, experienced hunters can, um, you know, work with those groups with our three programs to establish learn to hunts or um, hunt for food type events. Um, I think those are really great. And then folks who are looking to get into hunting or maybe get into a different type of hunting um, can look to those programs and get involved that way. So um, one thing that I'm actually working on for this year, it's brand new, um, I'm working with primarily with the Wisconsin Waterfall Association, but then uh, Pheasants Forever is helping out a little bit in the background too, is we're actually gonna do a women's learned a waterfall hunt. That's going to be for women completely taught by women as well. So um, that's something that I'm um, working on right now. Um, we've got volunteer mentor instructors from all over the state of Wisconsin who are going to help out with that. Um, some are other DNR wardens, some are um, US Fish and Wildlife Service personnel. Um, some are people who are associated with WWA. And um, we have one person who actually kind of grew up in in the R3 program. So Really excited about that and I think, you know, that is a great, kind of a great um, example of how people can get involved um, where we're looking at a, you know, especially in the waterfall community, women, there aren't a lot of women waterfall hunters. So really excited that we can welcome um, our participants into the to the um, event and feel comfortable by having other women show them the ropes and introduce them to the waterfall hunting world.
0: That's, that's really, really cool. And I'll just, I'll just add, um, the, the need for hunter. I'll just tell a quick story about the, the need for, uh, younger hunter education, uh, teachers. Cause we, so, um, I'm the co-owner of okay. Hunter. We do, we do the uh, trade show up in the Dells every year, the open season, uh, sportsman's expo and our booth the past couple years has been next to, uh, the, uh, a group of, um, folks who are trying to recruit, uh, hunter education teachers and we, we became friends with like the youngest guy there and we i had a conversation with him probably 15 minutes about this exact topic this past march um and he's in his late 50s early 60s and he's like i am the youngest like instructor that i'm around and it's it's alarming actually because how do we how do we how do we teach you know how do we how do we have everybody get what they need to from a certification standpoint if we don't have anybody that's willing to actually teach them. So um it's, it's very very interesting. It it's, it's a, as that's a topic that I've actually been aware of before. The other stuff's really really good though. And and Megan I'm really looking forward to seeing or hearing about um the the women's waterfall event. That's that's really cool.
3: Yeah, thanks. So we're we're super excited about it. Um I think it'll be really good. Um we've got an all-star lineup of instructors so um, this year we are gonna try and keep it kind of small. We want to have quality over quantity. Um, but yeah, we're we're really excited, and we can't wait to kind of share share with the world how it goes our first year. One of the things
2: that's really cool from the Fish and Wildlife Service um, that's uh, that Megan's coordinating that with, like they're able to like open up their uh, closed areas essentially for events just like that and like we've helped out, they do a disabled uh, uh, hunt every year that uh, that we've helped out with and they're, they're able to open up closed areas on the refuge just for special events like that. And so uh, you don't have to, you know, you're putting this on for these new hunters or in some cases like disabled hunters might not have much opportunity. So then the nice thing is then you don't have to like worry about competing with everybody else for spots, for people that you're just trying to bring into the sport or maybe, you know, in the case of the dis- disabled hunt, like that's their only opportunity to really get out. So so that is really cool having those relationships with, uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service and some of the other organizations.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. All right, Jeff, Matt, what do you guys got here?
1: Uh, I had a couple couple more points to talk to. Um, would be, you know, if somebody somebody's reading the rules and the regulations, and they they want to suggest a change, or maybe they disagree with with some of the new rules or regulations that are coming out. How can how can hunters um, hunters and fishers make their voice heard in those types of situations?
2: Sure. So the um, most common one that I end up dealing with is is uh, fishing related because. But there, there's the same process in place for any of the hunting regulations. So Wisconsin's unique in that uh with with our rulemaking process um and the this the opportunity for citizen input that we have because of the Wisconsin Conservation Congress. And so when I say fishing, um I'm on the the warm water committee um as a law enforcement liaison uh with the conservation congress. And so uh that committee essentially um, when you hear about the spring hearings and the uh, questions that get voted on every year uh, that warm water committee decides what questions uh, for our inland waters uh, move forward every year and um, all the questions that are submitted on there are from citizens Um, and so uh, with that process essentially there's a citizen resolution uh, that goes through. The committee uh, will review it and and votes on whether or not that get that goes through and gets voted on on a statewide basis every year. And so that's that's like essentially the first step in that process. Um, you know then the the question would then have to move forward uh, to the natural resources board or or as a, as an advisory uh, as a department question essentially. Uh, but the natural resources board um, may may move it forward. If if it's uh, within um, the administrative code and they have the ability to change that, uh, some of the questions that come up they require legislation. So only the legislature can would have to enact a, a law change um, in order in order to change uh, you know change something something that re- requires that. Um, but essentially, the working through the conservation congress like uh, and submitting those citizen resolutions. Um, you know, that's, that's the first step in, in getting that issue out in front of the public. Um, and then, and then, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, when people have questions on regulations, um, you know, like whether it be a size limit on a certain lake for, for fish or a bag limit, um, you know, a lot of times, like the, even before it goes to Congress, the best way to, uh, the best thing to do is reach it, reach out to the local biologist and just discuss it with them. Um, and and just so that whoever it is, whatever they want to change, um, you know, they have an understanding of what the background is on on that on that rule. Um, but working through the Conservation Congress and the Natural Resources Board is something unique that we have here that where where anybody can essentially submit a, a rule change proposal.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's great that, that there's there's an avenue for people's voice to be heard in those types of situations because obviously if somebody's complaining about something that's that's the best way to to resolve it right is to to ask the question and possibly you know suggest a, a change of some kind. Um, so I had one other one other question um, before we can kind of start wrapping this thing up. I know we've been talking for quite a while. Um, so let's say somebody listened to this podcast and the two of you inspired them to potentially pursue a career in becoming a conservation warden how how should they start what would you say to that person
3: yeah so our um we would be really excited so it's a great career but we actually have a phenomenal um recruiting warden recruiting website on the DNR website so someone went to our our DNR website and typed in warden recruitment it would bring them to our um, warden recruiting website. And on there, there's a ton of information about the warden career, um, kind of, you know, what the first year as a warden looks like um, and just a lot of really great uh, information on there. There's um, ways to get on listserv so that as jobs come open. So we have our conservation warden, our field warden position. But as you know, we talked about earlier, we also have like investigative wardens. We also have, um, other types of wardens, recreational wardens. And then we have uh, for some folks too, we have uh, limited term employment opportunities. We have a community service officer position, which is a non-credentialed position that works alongside with our wardens to kind of help supplement um, with some of more of the um, customer service, public relations and low level enforcement on like state rec properties some of those PR events. So that warden recruitment site, if folks wanna check that out, they can get on that um, on that email listserv to get updates and information on the hiring process. We generally hire for uh, the field warden, the conservation warden position, but once a year we're actually um, in a current hiring process right now. Um, so we have applicants going through, they're in the background phase right now. Um, the folks who are going through the hiring process right now will start um, in 2024, in the um, late winter, early spring of 2024, depending on, um, I guess, which how much law enforcement experience they have. Uh, for folks who have no law enforcement experience, we actually put them through the Wisconsin Department of Justice Law Enforcement Academy. So they they are credential law enforcement. And then folks who we hire on who have already gone through that um, process, uh, we bring them on a little bit later and they'll go to a more of an abbreviated academy and, um, then complete the rest of their training with, with the folks that went through the DNR, uh, the full academy. So yeah, I'd really, really recommend that. Um, I'd also recommend that people reach out to their local warden and see if they can do a ride along. Um, doing a ride along with local wardens is going to give, um, people who are interested or curious about the career, Um, the best glimpse of what it actually looks like. I know I mentioned earlier when I when I was looking to do a career change, I went for several uh, ride alongs. um, And it really opened my eyes to what the career was uh, really helped solidify that. Yep, this is what I want to do. So I'd really recommend folks, you know, seek that opportunity out as well.
1: Now, I know you're the, I think I heard you guys mention that you're the only warden in Trampolo County. Would you say there's a shortage of wardens at this time? I mean, that could be maybe not just for Wisconsin, but across the country?
3: So that that's kind of a hard question. So um, we are, what our limiting fact. we have two limiting factors is we have a set number of positions that we can have uh, for our division. And then we have budgetary, the budgetary restrictions. So. Mm-hmm. Um, We're actually as a, as our division, um, Division of Public Safety and Resource Protection goes, we're actually doing very well with um, running um, near our our staffing capacity, Um, but um, we don't, we don't have problems um, with people wanting to be wardens. Um, We are very fortunate in that, um, you know, I think this year we're looking to hire upwards to maybe 20 new wardens. Um, and we had hundreds of people apply for our positions. very competitive. Um, but yeah, our, our I guess our limiting factors are our position numbers and then the budget, the salary budget to ensure we can pay our staff as well,
2: yeah, i would I would say I would, uh, with position numbers, like those are set by the legislature. and so um, I mean, that's they i I, I don't know when the last time they reauthorized like additional positions. well, in this last budget, they, they reallocated three positions for us, but they're like, basically they're, they're, um, dedicated to like ATV and UTV enforcement. And I say reallocated because like, they're just, they have to pull those positions from other department functions. So they're not like three new positions. Some other department programs are losing staff. And so like, I don't know. And, uh, like, when the last time was that the legislature like actually increased position numbers for us, like based on population or or, or recreational activities or or any anything like that. Um, but I would say I, that and that twenty so that twenty people that we're hiring essentially that's just replacing like um, you know people leaving through retirements or or in some cases leaving for other agencies. So that's. Um that's essentially to to keep us at at uh, to keep us fully staffed, essentially,
1: yeah, that's great that you guys have some a lot of people interested in in pursuing that career. that's that's great. I mean, we need we need more of you. You guys are there to protect us, help keep everybody safe. You know that's that's awesome to hear that that there's a lot of people pursuing that career still,
2: yeah, I think one one other thing I'll throw out there, I guess because uh, it's a common question that we get is about you know like like entrance requirements for the position because you know s- different states have different requirements and uh, um, so in in Wisconsin and in w- our our department has had different requirements over the years um, and people wonder well do I need to have a biology degree or do I need to have you know law enforcement like Megan said like if they don't have if people don't have law enforcement like we put them through our our own academy anyways. Um, if they do have it, then they just don't have to go to that part of the training. But um, we hire people from like all different backgrounds. I mean, I guess I'm like an education wise, I'm probably one of the more, I guess, traditional type candidates. Cause I I went to school for natural resources at Stevens point, but like Megan said, she had a, Mm -hmm. um, she had a recreation background and and made a career change. Um, But we hire people from, you know, all different backgrounds. I mean, we hired an insurance agent a few years ago who wanted a career change. And so we don't have, like, we don't, uh, we're, you know, we we want good people and and we want uh, high uh, quality character people. And, you know, um, the, the law enforcement side of it, um, you know, the natural resources side of it to some degree, um, you know, we can train people on a lot of those other I, on a lot of the job functions that we need we can train them on on those things um but our our priority is to hire uh high character high quality uh individuals and and so we're not as concerned about uh a, a you know a, a certain degree or anything like that
1: that's great. Tyler, I saw you smile when he mentioned insurance agent. You're over here like you sell insurance, don't you, Tyler?
0: I work for an insurance company. I actually, when I was touring colleges back many years ago, I toured UW-Stevens Point because that was that was a career field that I actually looked at. Well, it's not well, too late, buddy. <laughs>
3: well, we'll probably be hiring another class. So we usually, we usually start the hiring process in the spring. So uh, go go to the the ward and recruitment website get on that email list sir, so you can get updates and huh? we'll right. see you in the hiring process next year okay.
0: all right sounds good <laughs> i love it <laughs> that's great all right um uh, matt jeff any other questions before we before we really start to wrap things up here no i'm good we
1: probably no. we probably took enough of their time already
0: and yeah, nothing here okay all right uh so so Megan and uh, and Matt, the way we we end these podcasts is is with what we call sky blasting questions. These are sort of off the cuff, right? A lot of them probably at random um questions, and so basically this is a fun way to wrap things up. And the first thing that comes to your mind when we ask the questions, you just shout it out. That's your answer.
3: Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. This. That's a lot I, of hats.
0: Yeah, th- this is honestly we I I we've talked about doing a show that was just like all these questions here as many as we could think of, but th- that's that's for a future time and place here. So, um, I will go first. I'll ask more of a more of a more of a traditional question. That is, what is the most common misconception about conservation wardens?
2: Uh, we're looking at each other here. Like, uh, I I think Megan covered it early on. I think it's just that. That wardens don't get to hunt and fish um and and i think that's probably uh one of the probably the biggest the biggest one and and i would say that's um i mean yeah like like megan said earlier i mean yeah we're we're working on the openers but then we uh we get to enjoy our time we're out there with the retired folks during the week (laughs)
3: yeah yeah i would agree um that i think that's that's you know when i talk to people who i think would be good wardens i um that's what I hear a lot. Is they don't they don't want to lose or not be able to hunt or fish or or whatnot. And um, really, like I said earlier, you don't. You might just not be able to get other for every opener, but that's okay because it makes up for it. You know, other places. And
2: I would also add that, like when you like for for people that get into this career, whether it be a DNR warden or biologist or whatever, um, one of the really cool things is like we have opportunities to go to like nationwide or international conferences. And like Megan and I both went to the uh, North American wildlife enforcement officer conference last year down in Tennessee. So you're networking with officers from all over the country and in Canada. And, and then it's like, so your, your Rolodex of contacts in other States, do you ever have any interest in traveling? It's like, you never hunted in, in, in some state. Or you know, you want to go on a hunting or fishing trip. Well, you got a contact there already who spends all their time out in the field. So that's a really cool perk of, of the job you get to have a pretty cool network of friends.
0: Okay. So what what I'm hearing is is that uh the misconception that 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 conservation wards don't get to hunt is one, a complete fallacy, and two, you may you may be when you want to take out of state trips, be tipped on some of the some places where you will probably find game. nope yeah okay okay all right all right um okay this one is a little bit more random then i'll let matt and jeff jump in with whatever they got here uh coffee or energy drinks
2: coffee
3: i'm kind of weird and not a big caffeine drinker so okay um i coffee
2: and pre-workout for me yeah
3: i guess i i've just started getting into some of the i I guess i call them foo-foo coffee drinks i um i really like a good malted mocha but i um i don't need it for the caffeine i I like it for the chocolate
1: nice
0: (laughs) okay 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 uh i i I follow up question for you Megan is how do you survive caffeine?
3: i don't know i don't know i uh i ask myself that all the time too but um i you know honestly i think it's you know when you enjoy what you're doing and stuff um i think that just gives me a lot of motivation and um so i also like to sleep a lot so
2: (laughs) she's one of those happy people all the time like i i i can't figure it out
3: but
1: all right i I got a couple so kind of a follow-up to the coffee or energy energy drinks question would be what is your favorite gas station to stop at for a snack or coffee when you're out on the road
3: oh boy um well i mean we're in wisconsin and there's a quick trip around every corner so um but you know honestly there there's a gas station in Trempolo that has pretty good snacks so um, County County's pretty uh, sparse on what we what we have. so um that's that's usually where I stop,
2: yeah, I mean, i we like uh, obviously like supporting local businesses if we if we can, and I mean, you get to know your community and 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 uh, I mean there's there's we like to any of those mom and pop uh, local businesses are. Always nice to to stop in at and, and and chat with uh with folks. One of them in in La Crosse County, um, it's local local meat market, and uh, it's always good. And they they do deer processing and stuff, so it's always a good place to stop in at. They got a gas station as well. So, um, but yeah, then uh, like Megan said, it, it's hard not to stop at Quick Trips at the same time. You can never go wrong with Quick Trip. That's right.
1: What was the quote I used the other a uh, couple episodes ago? Was that if they sold underwear, you wouldn't need to go anywhere else. That's and exactly and Quick Trip, Quick Trip actually reached out to us via social media and said that they do sell underwear on their website. So just an FYI, if you need some underwear, they got it too. <laughs> uh, all right, I got I got one last one. This is just a real easy, quick one: burgers or brats?
3: Oh, burgers. Oh, yes i agree <laughs> i
1: agree Ooh, that was cool
0: that was, that real, was quick. real fast
3: that was... <laughs> although <laughs> it i did. mean if it's, if it's a good like a good gourmet brat i mean but yeah burgers i mean you can't you can't you can't pass up a good burger yeah
1: i agree <laughs> all right matt you got any sure my, my usual question if you have one what's your favorite mount or taxidermy
0: at your house
3: you know we don't have any um but I like to trap. So I'm pretty proud of my fur collection. And I would have to say, um, probably my bobcat and otter.
2: Awesome. Um, it's, I guess it's, it's a, it's a set of antlers, uh, that I have not even a a mount, Uh, but it's, it was, uh, my only elk hunting trip. I shot a spike, um, in Idaho. Um, and, uh, actually, um, a warden that I went to college with uh, he he works out in Idaho he's a warden out there and uh, we're still still friends to this day he went to college um god what was that now 16 17 years ago something like that um but uh um so anyways it's was, it was a super memorable trip because um I went out there with with two friends um never elk hunted before and um you know I didn't hardly see my friend at all cuz he was working their elk season um but uh, um, we ended up getting, uh, uh, all, we got, we put it as a group, we got gun tags and, and we went three for three um, that week and packed out three elk in, in that week. And I think I slept for like 15 or 16 hours um, after, I, after I got home after that week. And I, I was sore for about a week, but it was uh, probably the most memorable hunt um, that I've been on. And uh, unfortunately I was like, It's almost nine years ago now eight years ago but it it was uh and uh with idaho they've they've changed their allotment for like non-resident tags and so when i talked about we talked about going back it's like oh man they it's uh it's a lot harder to get a tag out there than it than it used to be
0: Mm. that's cool that sounds super memorable um that so that leads me to a question here what what is your favorite wild game to to eat consume.
2: ducks <laughs> For for me it was elk that that I mean that meat was incredible. It was it was great.
0: All right. Um and then you mentioned before that uh you were dog owners what types of dogs do you own?
3: Uh, vishlas.
0: Hey, I have a vishla.
3: Yeah, I have got two of That's them. That's
1: awesome. I have a 4-year-old female.
3: I've got a 4-year-old and a 13-year-old female.
1: Wow. That's yeah. great
3: yep so the younger one is whatever reason not very happy that she got shut out of the room and wasn't included on this
0: <laughs> <laughs> they
1: call them velcro dogs for a reason right yep.
3: yep but they are they are by far the best um my parents had one um we actually got them all from the same breeder so yeah we absolutely love them I think they're they're great great breed so
1: that's so cool. I wasn't, I was not expecting that. There's not too <laughs> many fellow Vishla owners here on this, uh, yes. this waterfowl podcast, but we do yep. do Upland too. So that's good. Yeah.
3: Right. Well, the the older one, she, she, well, she's pretty much retired now, but man, she, uh, she's a dog of a lifetime. She does it all. And, you know, she's a great Upland, uh, you know, bird dog, but I, I started taking her out duck hunting in the early season, man. I mean, with no, with no duck training, she, I mean, she was phenomenal, made blind retrieves. I mean, if a bird went down, she found it and she brought it back, even in some like even in some of the wild rice on the river and stuff. and um yeah, she she did really good. They both love to swim,
1: so what you're telling me is I should not be afraid to take my vichel out in the the warmer months here for the the duck season yeah.
3: just just be just be prepared for uh whininess yeah. as, as you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was my biggest thing is i don't know how the heck i'm going to be able to keep her still for that long that's the problem <laughs> yeah.
3: I've, I've taken the the younger one out uh unfortunately every time i take her out there's never any birds around but she actually does pretty good um sitting and being pretty quiet the older one not so much though
0: <laughs> that's that's awesome to hear that's cool yeah that is uh that is not the breed that i expected to hear after you had <laughs> said that your favorite thing to hunt is ducks and your favorite game to consume is ducks.
3: I was yeah.
0: And you said V-Sly was speechless for a second there.
3: Okay. Yeah, well, I don't know. When you, when you meet V-Sly, uh, I don't know what's not to love about them. So they're
1: great. They're great. Dogs. They steal your heart pretty quick. And, and I know Jeff is Jeff is been
3: friends with labs. So it works out well.
1: They're, they're little Raptors in the first few years, but they, once <laughs> they settle down a little bit, they're great family dogs too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right um, okay uh this one so so megan you mentioned earlier that you love to to uh fish for stream trout which is a passion of mine that i have not uh done anything about in probably six years now um i grew up in southwestern wisconsin so sure. part of the driftless area there right Hunt, like get in my car and drive like three miles and i'm you know i can catch trout and you know four different streams. Uh, what is the biggest stream trout that you've ever caught?
3: Oh boy. Gosh. I try, I don't even know. Um, so I've been fishing in Northern Wisconsin, mostly the last few years. Um, so we're getting into more brook trout country um, where obviously they don't get as big as the browns or rainbows, but they're uh, brook trout are my favorite um I'm trying to think of the biggest one I did catch probably about a 14 inch brown um out of the creek um I haven't caught anything super super big I guess but honestly um you know around those 10 inches are probably the one I like to eat trout so sorry (laughs) sorry for folks that don't like to eat trout but um I you know I I really like trout um and um so you know I, I like one that I can flay up and cook up I don't like them when they're too big or too small
0: that's fair. Um, Matt, Matt, do you any, do you do any stream trout fishing?
2: Um <laughs> not very much. Um, yeah, I guess I've I've probably only done it a uh, handful uh, of times.
0: So. Okay. Then I'll I'll wrap up. This is the last one i got. So Megan, uh fly fishing or send tackle?
3: Um I actually use worms the majority of the time. Kay.
0: Okay. That was the third. I oh almost I almost wrote that down. I was like, eh. You
3: know? <laughs> Um spin tackle. (laughs) Yeah. So um the I I have fly fish, I do fly fish. Um the the stream that I primarily fish now. Um there's almost absolutely no way you could fly fish it because it is so dense with vegetation on the sides. Um there's actually, you know, some of the stretches, especially with Brook Trout, I think uh, you know, being able to float uh, a fly or nymph down would be more conducive for some of the runs that are there, but um tr- you know actually being able to cast is the, the big challenge there so um actually when i was younger uh, like in middle school i actually tied a lot of flies that was a hobby of mine and um probably did more fly fishing when i was younger hmm. um you know i now i i guess i i resort more to worms just because it's a little bit easier for where i'm fishing
0: yep yep and if you're looking to to take fish home that's the most efficient way you're going to do it too yeah so so excellent all right um that's all i've got for sky blasting questions we are almost two hours in so if you were listening you've made it this far thank you thank you thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode i know i did i learned a ton um and i hope that uh, megan and matt you guys will both be open to coming back on the podcast sometime again soon because um i know that we really enjoyed it
2: yeah well, yeah absolutely, absolutely.
0: Awesome. Excellent. All right. Uh, Thanks again for those tuning in. Um, We will uh, catch you guys next week.